Good evening. You can open with me in your Bibles to the book of Job in chapter 27. We have now reached the final defense of Job toward his three friends. Last week we completed the third cycle of debate where Eliphaz and Bildad had their say. Zophar didn't speak, but Job sort of responded to them. And now Job is offering what you could call his final defense. These are, these are the final words of Job. We're going to go through it quickly. Uh, there are a number of chapters, and I'll comment and we'll get through it, because uh, a lot of this, again, poetic language, very beautiful to read, but somewhat redundant in that the thoughts are reiterated, and that's really the form of the poetry in the book of Job. But we'll be starting in chapter 27 and in verse 1. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you as we've been studying in this precious book in your word. We've learned so much about your ways, and we've learned so much about how we get it wrong, how so often we just really, truly don't understand you, or why you do, or what you do. And because of that, it causes us to appreciate that your ways truly are higher than our ways, thoughts above our thoughts. Your goings before everlasting we just simply don't understand. But by faith we come to you and we ask that you give us peace and comfort in those misunderstandings, in those times where we do not understand. May we be able to glean from your word in a way that ministers not only comfort and encouragement, but truth and wisdom and knowledge and all that we need to serve you in this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at the final defense of Job toward his three friends as he speaks here, convinced of his righteous standing before God in verses 1 through 6. You'll see here that none of the arguments of Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar did anything to convince Job that he was at fault. Nothing they said, all of the accusations, caused him to question his own integrity. And indeed, we know that he was a man of integrity. But here's what we read in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 27. Job continued his discourse, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. As long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit that you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Now, that's amazing because we've just gone through 26 chapters. Much of it, starting in chapter 3, was three friends trying to convince this man that he had done something to deserve his immense suffering. But none of their words, not Eliphaz the spiritualist, not Bildad the philosopher, not Zophar the dogmatist, none of them were able to convince Job of what he knew to be true. That while he wasn't a perfect man, and he wasn't always the kind of person that, that had no faults, he had not done anything to deserve his suffering. He would not curse God despite his great suffering, and he would not deny his integrity despite the accusations of his friends. And then he warns his friends not to oppose him, because in opposing him, they would suffer the fate of the wicked. Look at verses 7 through 10. May my enemies be like the wicked, my adversaries like the unjust. For what hope has the godless when he is cut off? 
when God takes away his life? Did God listen to his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he find delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? Listen, that's the truth of the wicked. And he's warning his friends, don't follow the ways of the wicked. They were in the wrong. We'll find out at the end of the book. They were in the wrong, clearly. And he's warning them, don't pursue this path of thinking you know what you're talking about because you don't. And then he turns the tables on his friends by teaching them about God and his ways, which was something that they professed to teach Job. And in verse 11, I will teach you about the power of God. The ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. You have all seen this yourselves. Why this meaningless talk? Why this meaningless talk? That's essentially what he's saying to them. Then he goes on to describe the fate of those who are truly wicked before God. Essentially, he's pleading with his friends, don't pursue this path. Don't receive and experience the fate of the wicked, for this is the description of that in verses 13 through 23. Here is the fate God allots to the wicked. The heritage a ruthless man receives from the Almighty. However many his children, their fate is the sword. His offspring will never have enough to eat. The plague will bury those who survive him, and their widows will not weep for them. Though he heaps up silver-like dust and clothes like piles of clay, what he lays up the righteous will wear, and the innocent will divide his silver. The house he builds is like a moth's cocoon, like a hut made by a watchman. He lies down wealthy, but will do so no more. When he opens his eyes, all is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. The tempest snatches him away in the night, and the east wind carries him off, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls itself against him without mercy. As he flees headlong from its power, it claps its hands in derision and hisses him out of his place. Now, what's interesting is this sounds very similar to the things that these three friends were saying about Job. It's very similar to the things they said were true of Job. Because they were accusing him of being wicked, the judgment of the wicked sounds the same. But what Job is saying is, listen, I'm not wicked, but you guys have acted wickedly, and this is the fate of the wicked. So it's as if he's turning around and and using their own words and thoughts to counter them, to turn the tables against them in his debate. You often will do that when you're debating someone. You, You pick up on something someone said, you hold on to it, and then you turn it around and sort of throw it at them to win the debate. And that, that's what we see here um, as the debate sort of comes to a close with these men. And then he does something really very poetic, but actually quite beautiful. Uh, he's going to talk about man's desperate search for riches, which no one would deny. Man is always searching for riches. In fact, when you think about it, all the conflict in the world basically comes down to economics. Wars, economics. Conflict, economics. Corruption, economics. That is, it's all about money because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So it's true. And what man will do, mankind will do to find riches, I mean, there's simply no end to the, to the steps that he will take to become rich. And this is the point here as we read in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 28. He'll even seek for riches at great peril to himself. And look at this, verses 1 through 11. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft. And place is forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and sways. The earth 
from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contain nuggets its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows what's hidden, that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. Very poetic reiterative way of saying man will go to any extent to find riches. He will. When you think about mining, just, I mean, when I was younger, I wasn't quite so claustrophobic. It's interesting how when you get older, I think most people have come to this conclusion. You you get older, you don't like tight spaces so much anymore. You know, when you're a kid, you almost enjoy that, right? As you get older, you definitely don't enjoy that. And uh, I have been on tours that go into mines as a kid, it's a pretty scary thought to be trapped underground, hundreds of feet underground in the pitch dark. Not something I would enjoy doing. And yet there are people in our nation that this is their every day. They tunnel down or they take those elevators, you know, and they go all the way down and they, they're, they're mining for maybe gold or silver or some other substance. Sometimes it's coal, whatever it is. And they're willing to take great risks because of the value of what they're mining for. So that's really the purpose, just a very poetic way of saying Look what man is willing to do for money. Look what he's willing to do to be rich. There's no end to what he's willing to risk to become rich. But notice he goes on from there. That's the first thought. He basically now says, look, wisdom and understanding are far greater in value to mankind than sapphires and gold and silver and rubies and all types of things. And so he goes on to say in verse 12, But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir. Now, the gold of Ophir was the finest quality of gold known to them at that time. With precious onyx or sapphires, neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. So poetically saying, you can't buy wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You can't. You know, the Beatles said, can't buy me love, but we know that you can't buy wisdom. You, you can't buy understanding. And if you could, I wonder how many people would even bother to pay for it. It's amazing to me you share the truth with someone, the truth of Scripture or just plain old truth, logic, and people will go out of their way to prevent having to hear it. So far from being something that mankind in general pursues, he almost shuns wisdom and understanding in order to be rich or powerful or satisfied or sinful. And Job makes that observation, and it's a good one. Then he goes on to say in verse 20 that man should seek for wisdom and understanding instead of riches. And so now it's interesting. We've we've entered a phase here with Job's defense where he's not so much defending himself. He's talking to them about seeking God and seeking wisdom. And this is a man who's suffering. This is a man who doesn't understand what he's going through. But he understands the importance of seeking God in his suffering and trusting God and learning from the experience. You know, you can gain wisdom... 
from the worst of experiences, the worst of circumstances. I heard someone say one time, if you're going through a trial, don't waste it. Don't waste it. It's a grand opportunity for you to learn and grow in your relationship with Christ. But many times we do that. We waste it by just complaining and waiting and waiting until the trial is over. Rather than taking full advantage of it, for the New Testament has many examples where we're told that persecution and trials, they, they create patience and character and perseverance. And if the scripture tells us that, if Peter and, and Paul, and James, if they tell us these things, it's because it's true. So are you wasting your trial? Are you wasting your difficulties? Are you not seeking God and growing in wisdom and understanding when you have an opportunity to grow like never before? Or are you too busy just sort of holding your breath, waiting for God to take it away? Listen, you're going to have plenty of opportunities in this life to experience trials. Make the most of them. Don't waste them. That's about the best thing I can say. Well, here's what Job has to say. Verses 20 through 28. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. So he's sort of likening it to the ore that's in the ground. You've got to kind of look for it. You know, you've got to search for it. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind, he measured out the waters when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm. But then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, this is beautiful, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. So we could all get in one of those elevators, travel down like a mile and a half into the earth where it's pitch dark, and search for diamonds or rubies or sapphires and risk our lives doing so. Or we could read God's word, which is a whole lot easier to distill than journeying down to the center of the earth, right? And there you're going to find what's more valuable than any of that wisdom and understanding. And I'm so glad that Job didn't just say, you need to know it. He actually told us what it is. He saved us a lot of trouble. We don't need to do any mining because it's been presented on a silver platter for us. What is it? The fear of the Lord, that is reverence for God, worship for God, respect of God, that is wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom, as the scripture says in multiple places. But it also says to shun evil is understanding. Now, why is that important? Because lots of people who know better that don't do better. You know, I I heard it explained to me when I was a kid, just as an example. If you do something that's unhealthy, whether it be drinking or smoking or something that you know is bad for you, you can have all the statistics, have your doctor lay it out for you, know for sure that it's bad for you and still do it anyway. So in that case, you have knowledge, but you don't have wisdom. And you don't have understanding because you're not shunning the thing that's bad for you. Now, as it relates to serving God, and we're all guilty of this. Listen, we all are guilty. We know better, and we don't always do better. So what we're learning here is that the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. You respect God, right? If you respect someone, you listen to them. But it's more than that. You also obey them, okay? So if you respect your parents you obey your parents. You can't say, I respect you, mom and dad, but I'm not doing a thing you're telling me to do. That, that doesn't make any sense. If you're going to respect, 
then you have to obey. And that's the fear acted out in shunning evil. That's the understanding. So I often will say to someone, do you understand? Oh, yes, yes, I understand. No, you don't. Well, what do you mean? Well, look what you're doing. You're doing the very wrong thing. How can you say you understand? Well, I understand it's bad for me, but you do it anyway. That's not understanding. That's knowledge. That's not understanding. So I love that. That's a, that's a real gem you know, that you don't have to mind for. Right here in the scripture that really tells us something. It tells us that man should seek wisdom and understanding instead of riches, but man cannot find wisdom and understanding by himself. You're not going to be able to find it by yourself. You're going to have to find it in God's word, right? That's the first thing. Second thing, only God can provide us with the wisdom and the understanding we need. You can't go find it somewhere else. That's the point of all this poetic language. You can't mine for it. You can't purchase it. God has to give it to you. And wisdom is reverence for God and understanding is obedience to his word. Amen? I mean, we could take just that section and that's a great meditation. Uh, Like if you're going to have a devotional in the morning, maybe tomorrow morning, just, just read those verses right there. Just think about that a little bit or tonight before you go to sleep. Okay, so that's Job's defense against his friends. He's kind of gotten now into this, this uh, idea that, well, listen, you know, it's important that you seek God. It's important that you obey God. And the conversation is going to start to shift a little bit from that to him sort of pouring out his complaint before God and lamenting his condition because the man is suffering intensely. He really is. And so we read in verses one through six, he longs for the past. Have you ever been going through a difficult time and you think back <clears throat> and you say, oh, man, I remember when life was so much better. As we get older, we remember when our knee didn't hurt, you know, or we could run faster. Uh, you know, I encourage you, take care of yourself. You know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of taking care of yourself. And my motivation for staying in shape, it isn't to be super strong or look great. It's so I can reach the can on the top shelf of my kitchen when I'm like in my 80s. It's so I'll be able to walk up and down stairs in my 80s, you know? So I, honestly, that's my motivation. It's not, it's not a vanity thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a restorative thing. I, I want to stay healthy because quality of life, you know, quality of life. And so, so many people uh, spend their time worried about what they dress like, what they look like, and even their motivation for going to the gym really isn't health and fitness. It's really more vanity. I want to encourage you, you know, we do things that are good for us so that we'll be blessed, right, in many ways. And, and one of the things you can do for yourself is take care of yourself, eat right, and make sure that you're healthy so that you can reach that can on the top shelf of your kitchen. So those are the things that I think about. But when we think about the past, we sometimes think, oh, I remember when I was a kid, I'd run for hours and I would never get tired. You know, I could shovel snow, I could dig ditches, I could do all these things. Well, listen, when you're suffering and you think back to the good old days, it doesn't always make you feel better, does it? So Job is thinking back, and the first thing he longs for is his home life, his home life prior to his great suffering. And you can understand that, right? So look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 29. It says, Job continued his discourse, how I long for the months gone by. So now we know it's been months that he's been suffering. I think, George, we were talking about this the other day. Uh, you were asking, oh, do we know how long Job was suffering? It was a couple of weeks ago we were talking about it. And, and I pointed out scriptures like this. Well, he talks about months. It, it probably wasn't years, but it seems to have been not weeks either. It was months. 
So he says, I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. Now listen, this is how he feels. God still watches over him, but this is how he feels. For the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. Of course, his children had been killed, all of them. When my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Poetic language, when everything was sweet and just fantastic in my life. You know, I've spent a lot of time with elderly people over the years, even when I was very young. I spent time with my grandparents. And uh, that's one of the things you'll hear from elderly people, especially if they're shut in or they're sick. They'll think back, you know, when I was in my prime, and and they'll talk about it. And, you know, it doesn't always cheer them up, you know, but it's this idea that, you know, I remember when things were so much better. My life was sweeter. And you can't control things. I mean, you can take care of yourself perfectly, eat right, and still have a condition. Things happen. I mean, you can't prevent the inevitable. I mean, you can cause it by not taking care of yourself, but you can also just know that whatever you're going to go through, God is going to work through it. Like I said, don't waste the trial. But as Job's thinking back on his home life before he started suffering for several months in what he describes as spiritual darkness, he missed the good old days when his children were still alive. You, you can understand that, when his family was the way it was, and he shares that. Now, he also talks about his public life, because in addition to his home life being blessed, his public life was also blessed before his great suffering. Look at verses 7 through 17. <clears throat> when I went to the gate of the city, which is the center of town, that'd be like your town center, your town hall, where the courts were and where things were decided, When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. And the old men rose to their feet. The chief men restrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. That is, they didn't have anything to say. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. Those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger and I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. So Job is now not only looking back at his home life, He's looking back at his public life, his life as a man of respect in his village, in his community, in his city. He had that respected position. He had a righteous reputation. And when he became sick and when all these terrible things happened to him, everybody assumed he had done something to cause that in his life. So he lost his reputation in addition to his wealth and his family and his health. He lost not his integrity because he held on to that, but he lost his reputation. People assumed the worst. We've talked so much about this. Don't assume the worst when someone's going through a difficult time. Don't make that mistake like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But this is what he was going through. And back then, he used to think, looking at the future, he'd once thought that he had a blessed future. He he looked at his future. He said, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of my life. Everything was wonderful. He had no clue that this would happen. In verses 18 through 20 of that same chapter, chapter 29, he says, I thought I will die in my own house. That is, 
die in my sleep peacefully, you know. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water, and the dew will lie all night on my branches, describing himself as a healthy tree. My glory will remain fresh in me, my bow ever new in my hand. That is my strength. You have to have strength. Anybody ever used a bow, especially a good-sized one? I mean, you... When you're a kid and you're like, oh, and you think you're just going to do like, you know, Robin Hood, and you're like, what? And it takes a lot of strength to pull a bowstring. So he's talking about that. He's talking about, what I, you know, I thought I'd die with my strength and after many years, peacefully in my sleep. And everybody wants that, but not everybody gets that. And Job didn't. Well, maybe he did at the end, but at this point in his life, it doesn't look probable that that's how things are going to end. And so he once thought he had a blessed future. He had once commanded respect and awe from those around him, and he says so in verses 21 through 25. Men listen to me expectantly. Remember that E.F. Hutton commercial back in the 70s? You guys who are my age or close to my age, they would be like, when E.F. Hutton speaks, and then everybody would like put their ear out, people listen, right? I always think about that commercial. E.F. Hutton's long gone now, but, but the idea is when these financial advisors said something, everyone tuned in. Well, he says, men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears, and they waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them. And sat as their chief, I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. So now he's talking about his past. He's lamenting his past. How difficult things had been and how much he had truly lost. It's more than his family, his wealth, and his health. He had lost pretty much everything. All he's clinging to is the truth of his integrity. That's all he has. And the three friends just spent chapters trying to take that away. So we get a sort of a a snapshot of just how difficult this experience had been for him. Then we learned that he was despised by those that were so much less worthy of his respect. Now, he showed respect to everyone, but there, there were some that were less worthy of that respect, and they despised him after he was afflicted. Look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 30. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained, to put with my sheepdogs. So basically, these aren't people worthy of respect. And, and, and their children are now mocking me. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land. In desolate wastelands at night, in the brush they gathered salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broom tree. They were banished from their fellow men, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds among the rocks and in the holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and huddled in the undergrowth, a base and nameless brood. They were driven out of the land. He's talking about people that were in the dregs of society. These were people that weren't considered noble. They were problematic. Uh, They weren't to be trusted. And he's saying that even these people at that sort of low wrong in their society, they despised him. It's a poetic way of saying everyone hates me. <laughs> Everyone's against me. I mean, this is not a good experience. I think we, I think we have, have understood the poetry in that regard. He's also mocked and afflicted by these unworthy and ungrateful men. Look at verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> and now their sons mock me. 
in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow, so there you have that poetic language, taken my strength. You understand how to interpret that. Unstrung my bow, taken my strength, and afflicted me. They throw off restraint in my presence, and on my right the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me. Without anyone's helping them, they advance as though through a excuse me. They advance as through a gaping breach amid the ruins. They come rolling in. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind, and my safety vanishes like a cloud. So he uses poetic language to describing of an invasion, an army encamped around a city or a, or a town or a village, to describe how these people come after him. Unworthy people attacking him, and uh, again, the poetry makes it very clear. This was a difficult experience. So uh, right there through verse 15, we learn his afflictions subjected him to great abuse. Now, why is that? Someone's going through a difficult time and we abuse them. But isn't that true? Isn't that how society works? It shouldn't. It certainly shouldn't be true among God's people. But in the world, if there's someone that is afflicted, they tend to get treated even worse. They get treated even worse than the person who is doing okay should be the other way around, wouldn't you think? You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but within the last 200 years, uh, there was a movement to help people that were afflicted. Hospitals were started by Christian organizations, by well-meaning people. They raised money in order to help people who were afflicted. This happened only really through Christianity, through the church. And in this country, in the UK, and other places, uh, People got together and and founded hospitals, and those hospitals were primarily founded to help the afflicted, help people who were suffering. Now, if the church didn't exist, I can tell you those hospitals wouldn't have existed, number one. When's the last time you saw a bunch of atheists get together and do anything for anyone but themselves? Seriously. But when you think about Christians and Christianity and the church, they're the ones that created all these foundations and hospitals, And interestingly enough, I just uh, read an article where the federal government was very close to going after a Catholic hospital and persecuting that hospital uh, because they wanted to take all the Christianity out of that hospital. Uh, But when they pushed back, legally, the federal government backed down because they had no case. They were just trying to intimidate a, a Catholic hospital into getting rid of the Christian elements in their service. Oh, yeah, they like the hospital. They just don't want anything to do with Jesus. Don't tell me we don't have an absolutely corrupt, evil, demonic government running this country right now. Where else does that come from? I saw another uh, article where there was someone going into the lobby of a state house and hiding Bibles or something. And so they caught the person on camera. It was one of the legislators. uh, And she was going and finding the Bibles and hiding them, like putting them in the fridge, hiding them in in, in the breakout room. Why Why was she doing that? Can you not see that these people are demonic? I mean, listen, you don't like the Bible, fine. You don't like the Bible, don't read it. But you're hiding it in the fridge? There's something wrong with you. Okay? There, no, there's something wrong with you. Okay? If you're doing things like that, you're, you're, you're off. Okay? And I really believe it's spiritual. It's demonic. There's no other excuse for some of this behavior. So especially like the Department of Justice going after uh, or planning to go after and then trying to intimidate a Catholic hospital. But we see that that's what happens in our society. Listen. These hospitals were founded to help the poor, the afflicted, who couldn't afford medical attention, right? 
So, when you reach out and try to help the afflicted, you are doing the very thing that God has called you to do. Or have we forgotten what Jesus said? When I was sick, you visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me bread, right? When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. So the command and the calling of Christ upon us as disciples is, is the only thing that brings good things to this wicked world. The only thing that can save our society. All the other things we're, we see are the result of God not being in the lives of people. So back to the text, it's amazing because afflictions in the ancient world, even until just a couple hundred years ago, I mean, they actually caused people to just sort of, I'll let them die. They just cast these people away. They weren't interested in helping them. You know, get them out of the street. Throw them into debtor's prison. They, they, they didn't care. It was like, you're in the way. Just, just get rid of them. So we've, we, we've come a ways since then, but the world continues to revert back to its wickedness when Christ is taken out of the mix. That's the point, I guess, I'm trying to make. So Job's afflictions subjected him to great abuse at the hands of these wicked individuals. And his afflictions prevented him from defending himself against them. They, they wouldn't listen to him because they just looked at his life and said, well, you must be wicked. You're afflicted. And then he laments these great afflictions that were permitted by the hand of God. And you can't argue that. We were told in chapters 1 and 2, God allowed Satan to do this. God didn't do it, but he allowed Satan to do it. And so we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 30. And now, and this is really sad. And now my life ebbs away. Days of, su- days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes." So is he blaming God? Well, he's identifying the fact that God is in control of all things, and this has happened in his life, therefore God has allowed it. And then the language may seem like he's cursing God. He's not cursing God. But he does realize that God brought this suffering into his life, and he's kind of unhappy about it, as you can imagine. Um, so, <clears throat> after lamenting that affliction, he then laments that God has not responded to what he considers to be a great injustice. There are people who suffer because of things they've done. There are people that experience circumstances in their life because they've asked for it. There are. I mean, you walk out in the middle of the street in, in New York City and you get hit by a taxi cab. I mean, who, who can you blame, right? But there are people that haven't done anything to deserve the experience that they're having or the circumstances that are in their life. And Job is essentially pointing to this type of thing in his own life. Look at verses 20 through 23. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. Have you ever felt like that? David did. He said, how long, O Lord, how long? Will you forget me forever? In Psalm 13. And that's David, a man after God's own heart. So if you felt like this, if you've cried out and said these things, don't don't be too hard on yourself. You're a human being. Uh, You may feel like this at times. This book was put in God's word to help us to understand that. Uh, This is a book that really exposes the spirit of mankind. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. 
You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. So he doesn't doubt that God exists. Uh, he, he knows God is all-powerful. He knows God can do any, anything and everything. But at the same time, he's kind of resigned himself. That God's just killing me slowly. This is it for me. And so he laments that God hasn't responded to what he considers to be a great injustice. And he laments that his great suffering was ordained by God. He understands that. The book tells us that. God allowed it. Okay? You, you can't deny that. This book makes that clear. Satan wanted to do all types of evil things to Job. And God said, okay. And that'll keep you up tonight. Surely, in verse uh, 24, surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. So he's describing his skin condition at this point. He's, I mean, he had been suffering from boils, so I guess at this point his skin is covered with scabs. It just He's in bad shape. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning and my flute to the sound of wailing. You don't need any explanation. You understand what Job is saying. He doesn't understand why he's suffering, and he describes that suffering in great detail, and much of this book does. Okay, so now we get to the last chapter we're going to look at this evening. And in this last chapter for this evening in chapter 31, Job is defending himself now finally against his friends and before God. This is his final statement, his closing argument. And most of it is a justification of his own integrity. Essentially what he's going to say is, this is who I really am, and I know I am. And so, verses 1 through 4, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? See, Job lived with the understanding that God saw everything he did and the way he behaved. He lived circumspectly before God. And because of that, he didn't allow himself to lust for fear of God's righteous judgment. Now, that should probably describe all of us, but it certainly described Job. He also didn't allow himself to steal or to take from others for fear of God's righteous judgment. Look at verses 5 through 8. If I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. This is a very Middle Eastern way of talking and thinking. Remember when Peter was denying the Lord, and it says he called down curses. Uh, the Middle Eastern way of thinking is if you're really trying to be emphatic and make it clear that what you're saying is true, you'll, you'll say something, you know, curse curse me, make, make, you know, 
cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You know, this idea that may something terrible happen to me if what I'm telling you isn't true. That's a very, very Eastern way of speaking. Comes up in the Bible quite a bit and certainly here in the book of Job. He goes on to make it clear he didn't allow himself to commit adultery because of his fear for God's righteous judgment. Uh, By the way, this is what keeps us on the straight and narrow. I mean, we all have a sinful nature that would tempt us to do the wrong thing. We've talked about some of these things already, but Job didn't do them, not because he wasn't human, but because he walked honestly and humbly before God. He understood that God was watching everything he did and said. When you live like that, you will think twice before doing the wrong thing. You have to shut out the presence of God in order to flagrantly and willfully sin in rebellion. You have to. You can't do something completely wrong, know it's wrong, and still have a consciousness of God. You have to somehow figure out a way to push God out of your conscience. We call that a seared conscience. And what happens is uh, you can use drugs, alcohol, uh, just habitual behavior, addiction, whatever it is, if you continue on that path, you're, you're searing your conscience. So now you don't even feel bad about it. That, that's what happens. That's, that's what we learn about in the Bible. That's what we're taught. So what he's saying here is he wouldn't have committed adultery. Look at verse 9, very poetic language. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. It would have destroyed my life, basically. And he understood that. He also tells us that he would not lie or act deceitfully for fear of God's righteous judgment in verses 13 through 15. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, What will I do when God confronts me? I think of the parable of the unmerciful servant in the Gospels. I think of that here. What will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? And there's the, really the final case for anyone who would suggest that life doesn't begin at conception. Uh, what does it say there? Is, is, is life, does life exist in the womb? Yes. So when people say, well, it's not really a baby, that, well, that, that was an argument that was big back in the 70s. But now with modern technology, there's really no question about that. So they just change it. Now it's health care. Now it's health care to kill your child. See, before it was, well, it wasn't a child. It was a fetus, a zygote. An embryo. We use words to obscure this truth. But now that they know better, now it's just like, well, it's health care. So there's no end to the demonic way of thinking about the destruction of life. Just understand that. And even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Ugh. Sometimes it can really rattle your brain. Uh, where was I? Uh, very upsetting, right? So uh, back in verses uh, 13 through 15, did not the same one form us both within our mother? So if God's the one forming a child in the womb, abortion is murder of that work of God. We are created in God's image, and God is the one that creates us in our mother's wombs. To interrupt that or prevent that 
is murder, pure and simple. But he makes it clear he, he would not have lied or been deceitful or been unjust for fear of God's righteous judgment. He also didn't allow himself to be unmerciful for fear of God's righteous judgment. Look at verses 16 through 23. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. That's sort of a parenthesis saying, if, but I didn't. I've done this since I was a young person. I've always done the right thing. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment, and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my, here we go with those curses, let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint, for I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. This is Job's defense of his integrity. And so he would not have been unmerciful because he feared God. And let's go back to where we left off, remember? What did we learn? The fear of the Lord... That is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So now we're learning what the fear of the Lord meant to Job and why he behaved the way he did, because he feared God. That's, that's the essence of, of the argument. I fear God. Why would I do these things? And that's probably a good thing to think through. If you fear God, why are you doing those things? All right? Help you to get victory, hopefully. Well, he didn't allow himself to worship other gods or idols for fear of God's judgment either. Look at verse 24. Uh, back in chapter 31. If I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security, if I have rejoiced over my great wealth, my, uh, the fortune my hands have gained, if I have regarded the sun in its radiance, that would be sort of like worshiping the heavenly bodies, right? Or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage. Then... These also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. This is before the Ten Commandments, but already we see you're not supposed to have any other gods but him. And of course, he wouldn't have done this because he feared God. Also, he didn't allow himself to be unloving for fear of God's righteous judgment. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. So he defends himself in there. If the men of my household have never said, who has not had his fill of Job's meat? So no one says anything bad about him because he hadn't done anything wrong. But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. If I have concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. That is, if I walked away from someone in need, may all these terrible things happen to me, but I know that I haven't because I fear God. And we're going to see in this section here as we look over from verses 29 through 34, he loved people that didn't love him. He, he loved his enemies. Sound familiar? He loved his servants. He loved travelers. He wasn't a hypocrite. And he wasn't a man pleaser. He didn't do things to be approved by others. Wonderful example. Job is certainly a man of integrity. And he's assured of his righteous standing before God. Look at verses 35 through 37. 
Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step like a prince. I would approach him. We know that Job never let go of his integrity. And he didn't allow himself to be unjust for fear of God's righteous judgment. And so we close with verses 38 through 40. These are Job's final words. If my land cries out against me, and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. I have to say, Job did an excellent job of closing out his defense, making his case. He never cursed God. And he really didn't go after his friends. He really sort of lovingly warned them that they were on thin ice. And they're going to hear that soon, too, from God himself. He really shared his heart, but he also shared why he knew he was a man of integrity. Because he feared God, and he kept his commandments. And as the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, us, that is the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us an inspirational figure, an inspirational person uh, who suffered greatly, but still, what a wonderful example of integrity. May we be people of integrity, not just with good reputations, but with character that far exceeds our reputations with others. Lord, may we have the wisdom that we've talked about this evening and the understanding to use that wisdom and apply it in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.